So just an opening question. This is just rhetorical for you to think about. You don't have to respond to, but you can consider is what are you afraid of failing at? Most of us at some point in our lives have a fear of failure that we have to overcome. And I think we would all agree that wouldn't it be neat if the fear of failure resided only in our younger years? But it doesn't. It doesn't matter at what stage of life that we live in, the fear of failure is a very big thing. I mean, when I was young, I remember fearing that I would fail at finding somebody to share my life with. And then I met Karen and fell in love. And in a weak moment, I convinced her to marry me. A weak moment for her, not for me. It was my strongest moment, but it was her weakest moment. And she's a committed woman, so she's not leaving me. But I got the better end of that deal. But I, I overcame the fear that she, uh, that, I, that I wouldn't have someone special in my life. Then there was the fear of, you know, how would we do as parents? And uh, I'm in that stage right now. Youngest is 13, oldest is 20, and uh, they're still wet cement, you know? I still don't, I, I don't speak profoundly about how to raise kids because my kids haven't quite reached independence yet. And so I'm always, I'm actually always interested in uh, many of you who have kids that have, uh, created very stable and healthy lives, you know, but uh, so there's the fear of how would I do as a parent, then there's the fear of career, you get into your career and you fear, will I make enough money, will I succeed at all of this, will I get the, the advancements that uh, I hope, and then, and then you uh, get to a certain point in your career and you go, I'm afraid maybe I s sort of focused on all the wrong things, what if I entered into a career that now here I am, I'm 25 years into it, and if I could do it all over again, I would not do this, right? Some of you know that one. That's not a fear. Some of you are like, yeah, I retired from that one, hated that one, yeah, yeah, that's, and then there's the fear of retirement. Well, what will I do in my retirement? Well, is this just God's waiting room till I go meet him, or will I do something with it, or will I, will the money run out? There's all kinds, of, we face the fear of failure regularly. And the good news is, if you've ever faced the fear of failing, you're in good company. Because many people, good, solid people, have faced down that fear and had to deal with that. And in particular today, we're going to look at Moses. Because Moses had to deal with the fear of failure. And so I warned you, we're in Exodus 3, and I just want to read a little portion of this, and then we'll continue on. This is Exodus 3, starting in the first verse. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, which, by the way, those of us, this is another joke I can only make in a crowd like this. When you read the name Jethro in the Old Testament, you picture the same guy, don't you? <laughs> Jethro Bodine from the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, you know, again, another joke that fall, falls dead on uh, the younger crowd, but I'm just old enough to have grown up on Jethro Bodine, and I sure wish they would have named that character in the Beverly Hillbillies something else. But this is uh, Jethro, the priest of Midian. I kid you not, I made that joke once in a young adult gathering, and they just looked at me, just stared at me. I'm so glad I'm with you this morning, though. He led the flock into the wilderness, this is Moses, and he came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. And 
again, a familiar story for many of us. If you've seen, uh, whether you've read the Bible or just watched the Ten Commandments, Moses is a Hebrew kid. He's born at a time when all Hebrew baby boys in Egypt are going to be slaughtered. His parents show an act of faith. They put him in a basket made of reeds, and they float him down the Nile River, and he gets picked up by who? Pharaoh's daughter. And she picks him up. I picture Pharaoh's daughter not as this altruistic sweet girl who thinks, oh, there's a baby. I picture her as your typical rebellious teenage girl who wants to tick off her dad who hates Hebrew babies. And she brings home a Hebrew baby. Hey, look, dad, look what I got, a Hebrew baby. Remember how you wanted to kill it all? I'm keeping it. You know, 15-year-old girl or something like that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not how that worked. But it sure seems like it would line up perfectly but he grows up in that environment for 40 years ticks off pharaoh and he runs for his life because he kills an egyptian protecting the people of his bloodline and next 40 years he is a shepherd now i think that's important for us to know for a couple reasons because the moses that we see here in the movies is a kid he's 80 if we look at the outline in the scriptures 40 years here 40 years here he is not a kid. He's got some, he has got some wear on the tires by the time he bumps into the burning bush here. So verse 4, it says, Then the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look. So it's sort of bait on the hook. There's a, a bush on fire, which Moses has seen, but the fire will not consume the bush. The bush just keeps burning and burning and burning. So Moses thinks, I'm going to have a closer look. So God called him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Now, I don't know about you. This is, there's times I'm reading the Bible and I think, is that really how that story went? Because if I was out in the wilderness and I saw a fire of a bush that wouldn't quit burning and I walked over and that burning bush is still burning and then it speaks to me, I'm going to run like I'm a victim in a horror movie. I am not going to be like, oh, well, the bush, let's have a conversation. But here's Moses. The Lord speaks to him and apparently in such a way as to console Moses and the Lord says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground, sacred ground. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Powerful just moment. That's its own sermon. Just when you come into the sacred space and close proximity to God, how that naturally and even supernaturally humbles you. But that's another sermon for another day. It says, then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, Jebusites, and a lot of people with ites at the end of their names live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. And it's this exciting moment. God says, I've got a mission for you, Moses. I, the creator of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am sending you out. This is going to be an exciting opportunity. And how does Moses reply? Gladly, yes, here I go. No, please don't send me. But Moses protested to God. I love this. Who am I? Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? 
And I warned you, I think in outlines, this is point number one on the outline, the fear, fear of failure number one is I am not enough. The fear that I'm not enough, that I don't bring enough, that I, I, I in myself am not enough. This summer I read the story of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, brilliant, interesting story. Uh, I think he gets a bum rap uh, for, from a lot of historians. But uh, by, eight, by the late 1850s, there was nothing in Sam Grant's life that would lead you to believe that in a matter of a few short years, he would be the commander of all federal troops, and several years after that, he would be the president of the United States. Because by the late 1850s, he was a failed businessman, a failed farmer. Before that, he was a failed army officer who was mustered out. He had uh, struggles with alcohol. He had uh, struggles just drifting around in life, trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. When the Civil War started, he couldn't even get a commission. It took a lot of beg, borrowing, and stealing just to get a commission in the United States Army at the time. And if you were to ask Sam Grant in the late 1850s, hey, Sam, do you think you should be president? He would say, absolutely not. If you even said, hey, do you think you should be a commanding general of U.S. forces in 1860, he would have said, I don't think so. See, uh, the fear of I'm not enough, that is a natural human condition. But I love how God replies to Moses when, when Moses says, you know, who, who, basically, who am I? God doesn't say, well, Moses, you grew up in Pharaoh's household. You know, like, the roads, man. You, you actually went to, you know, like, a uh, prince school. And, uh, you know, you, you've been in the Sinai uh, Peninsula for all these years, so you know all the watering holes and all the dangerous spots. You're the perfect guy. You actually have, you are the guy. God doesn't say, here's your resume. Here's your LinkedIn profile. It lines up. No, God doesn't say that at all. He just sim simply answers. What's he say in verse 12? God answers. What's it say? Verse 12. I will be with you. I'll be with you. He doesn't tell Moses, yeah, actually, you're good enough. A lot of times we want him to say that to us. Oh, you got this. I've made you for this. But the truth is, is a lot of times we don't have it. There's a lot of times God calls us into things where we don't want to be in those things. But God doesn't say, you know what? I've actually equipped you for it. God just says, I'll be with you in it. And here we see this fear of failure, number one, I'm not enough. Well, guess what? God will be with you if he calls you to it. There's fear of failure, number two, and we see this. Um, uh, but Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel, this is verse 13, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? And this is fear of failure, number two, I don't know enough. I just don't know enough. Moses says, look, I'm not a theologian. What if they ask me a real stumper question? What if they ask me which God? What if they ask me a real hard question? Like, well, if, if God wants us delivered out of Egypt, how come um, he put us in here in the first place? How come he let us suffer so badly? Really? What if they ask me some real tough, tough question? How will I respond to that tough question? And for some of us, we don't engage people in spiritual conversations because of the same struggle. We think, well, I'm no theologian. What if, I, what if someone finds out I'm a follower of God, and they ask me, why well, why'd God let that hurricane wipe out that city uh, on the panhandle of Florida? How come, if there's a God, he's, he, he seems to always uh, give another person all the breaks, and he never gives me any of the breaks? 
What, what, if there's a God, what, how do you explain all the other gods? And for some of us, we don't engage in spiritual conversations because like Moses, we go, I, I don't know enough. Which, by the way, this is why it's important to be in a class like this, to have uh, some solid Christian friends around you, to have those conversations with, to build that strength and, and be encouraged with. But I love, I love, again, how God replies to Moses. Moses says, here's an objection, and God replies in an entirely different way. God replied to him. He said, I am who I am. I say this to the people of Israel. I am, or say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then he gives them this, he gives Moses like this theological lesson. He gives them this history and this rooting of who God is and where he has been. And so Moses says, I don't know enough. And God actually gives them some instructions on who he is and says, well, your your concern is they're going to say, well, who? Well, here's what you tell them. You remind them of where they came from. You remind them of their people. You, you let them know, I have not turned a blind eye to all that's going on in their life. So you would think at this point, he's had an interaction with God. He said, I'm not enough. I don't know enough. God supplies answers for both those things. You'd think at this point, Moses would go, all right, point me in the right direction. But no, Moses is not quite ready yet. He shares fear of failure number three, and that fear is a very real one that many of us struggle with is the fear of rejection. I will be rejected. And here's what he says. But Moses protested, what if they won't believe me? We can't say it. I mean, here's this strong guy. I mean, he's been through a lot. He's not a kid. He says, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? What if they say you're just a poser? Take off. I'm not listening to you. What if they just stiff arm me? What if I go in to have a conversation and, and they don't want anything to do with me? And, and I, love, I love God's re- reply here. Because once again, he, he doesn't give them, he doesn't give them um, personality tips on how to be a more charming individual to, to, uh, to warm. There's no Dale Carnegie here. Here's what he says. He says, uh, then the Lord asked him, what's in your hand? And, you know, Moses looks over. He goes, shepherd's staff. And he goes, all right, well, um, throw it to the ground. And so Moses throws it to the ground, and it turned into a snake. And I love the most, uh, sometimes the Bible has the most obvious statements. In verse 3, at the very end, it says, and Moses jumped back. Uh, uh, any of you just walking along and you bump into a snake? I don't know about you, but my, <laughs> I do more than jump back. I, I rebuke it in the name of Jesus. I look for a garden hoe to kill it. Uh, you know, I run the other direction. I used to live in California, and I'd, my wife and I'd walk around our neighborhood, and there are rattlesnakes all over uh, the Sierra Nevada foothills where we lived. And uh, on more than one occasion, I'm walking along, and I'm looking down, not looking ahead. Otherwise, I would have seen the viper. But I look down, and all, I'm like six feet away from this uh, like four or five-foot-long rattlesnake. And um, I nearly had a heart attack. Right? So Moses throws the staff to the ground. He jumps back. Sure, he jumps back. Then the Lord said, reach out and grab its tail. At that point, I'd be like, Lord, I would like you to, could I just go bada boom and, you know, stop it? But no, he reaches down, grabs it, I think by the very tip of the tail, and it turned back to a shepherd's staff in his hand. Really interesting. Perform this sign, the Lord told him. Then they'll believe you. So when the people say, hey, who sent me? Just throw the shepherd's staff on the ground. It turns into a snake. That'll get their attention. They're not going to be able to ignore that. 
Okay, then the Lord said to Moses, now put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak and he pulls it out again and it's like white like leprosy. And then he says, put it back in, pull it back out and it's like clean. And if I was Moses, I'd have been doing this the rest of the day. I'd have been like, awesome, that's pretty cool. But here's Moses. And so the idea, I loved it. And then he says, hey, pour some water on the ground and it'll from the Nile River and it'll turn to blood. What, what is God saying to Moses? Yeah, they might ignore you. They will not ignore my working through you. I'm going to work through you in a way that they can't ignore. Staff into snake, leprosy on the hand and clean again, Nile turning to blood. Good luck ignoring that. But again, it says in verse, verse 10, but Moses pleaded with the Lord, oh Lord. And by the way, this is just my absolute favorite of all of them. Oh Lord, I'm not very good with my words. I never have been. And I'm not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. And this is a fear of failure number four. So if you like taking notes, this is number four. I won't be able to perform. I won't be able to do it. Now, this is my favorite one because here we have, we have Moses and he's standing before the creator Lord of the universe in a fire that won't burn up. So it's just this consuming fire that isn't consuming the bush and it's speaking to him and he's arguing, he is arguing with a supernatural being at this point. And he says, using words, I'm not good with words. Now there's this like humorous moment in this whole thing, like if this was a movie, it should be a laughable moment because it, it would be like John Wayne saying, I'm just not a very good cowboy. Here's a guy who is using words to say he's not good with words. I've heard a lot of sermons and people say, well, maybe he did this, maybe he stuttered, maybe he did this, maybe he did. Uh, forget it, okay? He is making an excuse before the Lord Almighty using words saying he's not good with words. If you can if you can articulate your case against the creator of the universe using words, saying you're not good at words, my friend, you're great with words. You are one of the best orators in the history of oration. Because if you, if you don't crumple into a raisin before the Lord who is speaking to you, if you're able to just stand up, you are a star athlete. If you are able to speak your mind before the creator of the universe, then you, you should be an attorney. You have exquisite verbal skills if you're able to do that. And the Lord's reply even insinuates this. Verse 11, then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear, do not hear, see, or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I'll be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what you say. Discussion is over. I am the one that makes your vocal cords vibrate so that they turn into words when they come out of your mouth. And so don't tell me that you can't do something because I'm the creator of it. And so Moses is out of excuses. This is a perfect moment for Moses to do what? To say, of course, God, I'm with you. And Moses simply runs out of excuses and says, Lord, please send anyone else. And I'm encouraged by this because Moses is like heroic up here, but there are these human moments for Moses that I can really relate to. I don't know about you, but I can relate to. When you're, I don't blame him for feeling this way, do you? I mean, he's actually living a pretty good life. He's got a country estate. He's shepherding. Um, he's, he's, no one's trying to kill him. He's got a family. 
He's hanging out with Jethro Bodine all the time, which has to be hilarious. You know, he's got a lot going on. And now there's this interruption that's going to cost him quite a bit. You know, you hit your golden years and you think, this is the time to just do what I want to do and relax and take it easy. And this is where Moses is. And God says, I have a career for you. By the way, it's going to kill you. But it's going to be great. And I don't blame Moses. Please send someone else. But the tone changes. It says, then the Lord became angry with Moses. And I think we have to learn something out of that. That for all of us, there's this point where as we look at it, God is completely comfortable with us interacting with him at a very real level. In fact, I think that it, it does our relationship with him a great disservice if deep down inside we think this is a terrible thing God's asking us to do. And we're like, Lord, what a wonderful idea. Thank you so much for this opportunity. But deep down inside, you're like, I really hate this. As if God can be tricked by our words, right? God can look right into the heart. He, he, he is able to discern even things we're not able to discern. He's able to detect a, a motivations and emotions and thoughts that we can't even properly articulate. So he's okay with the banter, but he's not okay with rebellion. He is completely comfortable with us asking important, solid questions, even um, stating objections. He can handle all that. But if we say, God, I will not do what you have told me to do, now you're on really, really thin ice. And so the Lord said, the Lord got angry with Moses, but even in his compassion, if you know the story, he says, I'm going to send your brother, Aaron. He's going to help you out. You're going to go. End of discussion. And that's what happens. But for our purposes this morning, I'm curious about this idea of how do we overcome our fear of failure? Do we just buckle down and go, I'm not going to fear failure? Because I don't know about you, but that doesn't always work for me. If I make a decision, so for instance, you know, January uh, is just around the corner. Merry Christmas, by the way, and Happy New Year. It's not that far away, right? Halloween's in a couple weeks, and there we go. And what happens in uh, January? Make, people make resolutions, right? This is the year I'm going to exercise, or I'm going to eat right, or I'm going to read all those books, or something, right? And what happens about four hours into January 2nd, right? Oh, I have another piece of pie. It's left over from the party. And, uh, you know, I'm going to eat right once we get all of these Christmas cookies taken care of, you know. Once I've cleaned out the house of everything delicious, then I'm going to start eating things that don't taste very good, you know. That's when, honey, put kale on the list in about two weeks, right? But what happens is because it, we, we try to motor our way, muscle our way through transformation. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't always work. There's got to be some internal transformation that takes place. And so in this topic, what I'd like us to do is shift gears and turn to a psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 63. And um, I don't know about you, this is the right group that would uh, reflect this reality, I think. As I get older, the psalms mean so much more to me. In my youth, I used to even say, I don't get the psalms, I don't like the psalms. And I think to myself, well, when I was in my you know, teens and early 20s, of course, I was too stupid to know what the Psalms were trying to communicate. I didn't have enough life experience. I didn't have enough hurt, pain, or hopes that were dashed or otherwise. And so the Psalms speak in my, uh, as I grow older, the Psalms speak more and more to me. So this is Psalm 63. It's a Psalm of David. It's a time when um, he's in the desert. He's anointed king. He's not king yet. Saul's still sitting on the throne. Every now and then Saul tries to kill him. And every now and then Saul leaves him alone. 
And this is one of those moments where David is in the desert. And I think that David's going to give us some good indications on how we can overcome our fear of failure. So here we go. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. In this parched and weary land where there is no water. And if we're looking for some keys here to overcoming the fear of failure, I would say key number one that David talks about is to put significant effort into getting to know God. Put significant effort into our relationship with God. Not casual effort into our relationship with God. Not Sunday morning effort into our relationship with God. Not a couple hours a week effort. But earnestly searching for God. And if you look at that, that first section speaks of this intensity of soul and body. That means that that, uh, you you soak yourself into the word of God. For some of us, it means you you use a Bible reading plan. I always joke, if I go through the one-year Bible, I've been doing this now over 15 years. I have a Bible, and it's just called the one-year Bible. And if it wasn't for that, I'd never read Habakkuk. You know, it's inspired too, but I would never. I have now read through Jeremiah. I'm reading through it right now because in October you read through Jeremiah in this reading plan. And the first couple times I read through Jeremiah, I thought, what a bummer. This guy's always complaining. I don't get it. And now all these years later, I love it. Jeremiah speaks to the reality of the world we live in. and I mean, it is so timely. You read Jeremiah today and you're like, wow, is he a contemporary? Because he sure seems to be talking about a lot of contemporary stuff. But immerse yourself in the Bible. Listen to great worship music. And not all great worship music's old music any more than a lot of people think all great worship music is modern music. There's some really crummy old music and there's some really crummy modern music. I had a, at a church I served prior to this one, the worship pastor sang this uh, song. It is a pretty song, and some of you might like this song, and it's a good song. I'm not knocking it, but well, I'm going to knock it. But um, it's called Good, Good Father. And it's, uh, you, some of you know the song, and you sing it about 4,000 times. You sing the word, good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are. And for some people, they just love it because they're like, I had a bad relationship with my dad, and this song just, every time I sing it, I weep, and it's beautiful because God is my father. And if that is true for you, that's wonderful. And so our, the worship pastor of the church that I served alongside, the last church, I walked up to him after he had sung that song. We were in the back after the service. If you ever wonder what happens backstage, this is sometimes what happens. I'm in the back with Sean, and I walk up. I'm like, Sean, you are a good, good worship pastor. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. You're a good, good worship pastor. It's who you are. It's who you are. I did this for like four minutes, you know. It's who you are. Later on, I look over and I go, it's who you are. <laughs> like I said, if you like that song, it's great. But, you know, immerse yourself in good worship music. Um, and if that's your favorite worship song, then play that over and over. Memorize it. It should be pretty easy, that one. <laughs> that's right. Um, So David goes on. He says, I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better. You get that? Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. And key number two right here is let your life be a visible expression of worship. Let your life be a visible expression of worship. 
Now, not in some sort of goofy way. Sometimes we think worship means um, always singing songs and lifting up hands or something like that. But actually, in the Bible, God tells us a good act of worship is things like living a, a holy life. He says, I'd rather, I'd rather you obey me than do all the rituals. That's in the Old Testament. Uh, he, he actually would, a holy, and, and what Paul says in the third chapter to Christians living in Colossae, he says, you know what, if you work um, your job, whatever your job is, whether you're scooping ice cream or whether you're on a road crew or whether you're an accountant, if you do your job like you are doing that work for the Lord Almighty, then God's name is praised. And, uh, and there's, there, that itself ends up being an act of worship. Good work, heartily done to honor the Lord is an act of worship. Let your life be a visible expression of worship. If you're, if you're struggling with some, some fears in your life, then just let your life radiate the goodness of God, obedience to him. Here's how the uh, early church leader put it. He says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. That's Colossians 3. That's what Paul says. And, um, and then uh, the third key is to refocus your fear. If you're dealing with a fear, refocus it. This is verse 5 and 6 of Psalm 63. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. More than the richest feast. Now, Thanksgiving's around the corner. Happens to be my favorite holiday. My favorite holiday used to be Christmas when I was a kid because you get presents. But then as you become an adult, you're like, Christmas? That's a super expensive holiday. It's becoming one of my least favorite ones because I just, I just hemorrhage cash. I'm giving to all this stuff. But Thanksgiving is fantastic because it's just food. And I love food. And, and yet here he says, he says, you satisfy me more than a Thanksgiving smorgasbord. I will praise you with songs of joy. Get this, David, just picture him. He's out in the desert, okay? He's not living in a nice home at this point. He's camping. And if you've ever seen pictures of the Judean kind of desert wilderness, it is, it is not like camping, uh, you know, in the Ozarks, pretty and green and lush. It is like scorpion and snake-laden desert, New Mexico, you know? That's what it is. He says, I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. And this is a picture of refocusing your fear. You, you, I, as, as, um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time sleeping. I'll wake up in the middle of the night. I'm anxious about a thought, thinking about my kids. I have a daughter who's a sophomore in college, and she's up in Michigan, so I think of her. There's, I, don't, I don't have, like, worries, like, you know, but I worry just like a normal human thinks about their offspring or I think about various tasks or challenges or friends that are going through difficult times. And so I, I wake up, and I don't know about you, but if I sit there and I think about all that could go wrong, I am never going to fall back asleep again. But as I'm laying there, if I think, Lord, you are good. Lord, thanks for your provision. And I begin to rattle off all the things I'm thankful for. There's a peace that settles in. I, I can fall back asleep in that situation. And if I can't fall back asleep, at least I've done something good with the time. And there have been a few occasions in my life where I'm like, forget it. I'm not going to be able to go back to sleep. So I get up and I just open up God's word. I don't open up CNN because then I'll just get more worried. I will open up God's word and I will find comfort and strength from that. Refocus that fear. And then finally, key, key number four is trust God with the outcome. 
Trust God with the outcome. This is what David said, verses 7, 8, and 9. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings, your, your covering. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me secure. But those plotting to destroy me will come to ruin. They will go down to the depths of the earth. God is my defender. Verse 10. Then they will die by the sword. And, you know, he was a warrior, okay? So David's writing a pretty poem here, beautiful, and he's like, they'll die by the sword and become the food of jackals. Wild animals will eat them. You know, it's in the Bible, so it can't be wrong. By the way, the, the literal, the Hebrew here for die by the sword, that is a cleansed version because we read it in church. And it's funny because that's not what David wrote. David, David literally wrote, the flesh will fall over the handle of the sword. It was this Hebrew speaks in word picture. I know, it's kind of gross, isn't it? It's a picture of a sword going into the belly of a person and sort of being enveloped by the belly of the person, which involves some really bad outcomes for the person who just got stuck by the sword. And uh, if you're grossed out by that, take that up with the Lord Almighty because it's through the power of the Holy Spirit those words were inspired. I didn't do it. But here it is. David says, uh, the people who stand against me, those who really want to hurt me, God will take them out. He will be the defender. And by the way, Saul dies in battle. Saul's the enemy. David wouldn't strike at Saul. Saul kept trying to take out David. David lived for many years in this comfort in the Almighty, in this fear of Saul. But verse 11, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear to tell the truth will praise him while liars will be silenced. And so I just close in with this idea that the fear of failure, the fears that we face in life, they can't be defeated by being strong and face a fear. I, I see these little, if you're on social media every now and then, people post these almost profound statements. You know what I'm saying? They'll have a pretty picture and there'll be a statement and it's, it's profound. And I want to put a, a little comment under it that says that is almost profound because there's a lot of almost profound out there. But the reality is, is we can't overcome our fear of failure with almost profound things. But we can find that fear transformed in, into, into comfort and peace when we submit ourselves and draw near to God. The reality is, is when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And that fear, that fear may not completely evaporate. But the good news is, he said it to Moses, he says it to us, he will be with us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this group. Thank you for their attentiveness, their love for your word. Lord, we lift up uh, the Setons to you that they're enjoying some much-deserved rest and relaxation in a beautiful part of the country. So, Lord, let them uh, get their batteries recharged so that they can come back to Oklahoma City uh, fired up, ready to take some new hills for you. And so, Lord, let them have great time up there. Lord, for us as a uh, group of people here, God, would you, would you work in our hearts? For those in this room that are facing uh, particular concerns or fears, anxieties, come alongside, that they would be comforted and they would feel your presence in a fresh and, and uh, a new way. Lord, thank you that you give us your word, that it was written all those years ago, and it has incredible relevance to us to this day. And we ask that as we go from here, into uh, other classes maybe, or worship service. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the messages you want us to receive, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Hey, thanks for letting me be with you. Have a great week.